back to Uncorked, another podcast brought to you by Team Corker. This is a very, very, very long time coming episode. We had the privilege of recording this a couple of months ago, and we've had it saved for the special day, September 19th, when Kemi's book is launching. And this is the launch of her third best-selling book called Power. And I don't even want to record too much here because Kemi is just a woman of her own words, her own power, and her own power is so much more than anything I could say. What I would want to offer is that this is a conversation worth sitting down, perhaps sharing with a friend, to realize that powerlessness is the one thing that is worthy of renovation in all of our lives. Kemi has a TED Talk on the power of power Kemi has a new book on the power of power, and Kemi herself is a light and a hopeful, hopeful, bright soul to inject the power in you. You'll hear how Kemi and I had the sweet privilege of meeting many years ago and hopefully fall in love. I say hopefully, you will fall in love with Kemi, exactly as I knew to fall in love with her raw beauty many, many years ago. Enjoy this episode, my friends, and thank you, Kemi, for taking the time to record months later on the other side of the world. We love you. Kemi, are you with us? I am so with you. You are here. Welcome to the pod from your side of the world to our side of the world. This has been months, perhaps years. It's been 12 years since I've seen you in the flesh, and I just want you to know that your yes to come on the Uncorked podcast means the world to me. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Steph. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, it has been, you know, it's been taken a little while to have this happen. But when we connected 12 years ago, I knew that we would be in each other's lives, the rest of our lives, regardless of how that looks. So it's such a joy to talk with you Uh, today. You know, the quotes of people will forget what you say and will never forget how they made you feel. I just want you to know that I will never forget those pickled carrots that you made. And (laughs) there is something to be said for who you were as a raw food chef and artist and provider in that moment and eating carrots in a way that you made carrots. And you shared a story that if you made carrots like this, then that was a solid date night for you and your man. I mean, that was 12 years ago and I've never, ever forgotten it. (laughs) So beautiful. Well, while we're in the thanking, let me thank you because it was you that introduced me to the work of Dr. Brené Brown. And I would not be doing the work that I do as a dare to lead facilitator now. And I would not have trained with Brené if you hadn't have said to me, I think you're really going to like the work of this woman. And it was when only when the gift of imperfection was out and it was you that handed it to me. So I have to thank you for that. So you thank me for carrots and I'll thank you for Brene. I'm, I'm not sure. That's I'm not, equal like currency. Maybe. Equal yeah, currency. Right. This is so beautiful. The Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar. Um, <laughs> oh, well, worlds. Kemi, before we go too far into this, can I pause and have you introduce yourself to our listeners in the way in which you want to be introduced into the world in 2023. Who are you, my friend? I am a woman in midlife who is embracing this season and this chapter and the gifts that it brings and the opportunities that it brings. I am someone who commits fully 
100% to what I say yes to, which means I say no to most things. I am obsessed with delight and beauty and joy. Mm. My core values are well-being, growth and connection. And I need to make sure as an introvert that I have connected to myself before I connect with anybody else. Otherwise, I just don't like anybody else. And that's not a way to navigate the world. And I feel that it is an incredible, powerful time to be a woman who was born in England in the 1970s, who has Nigerian heritage, who now lives in Melbourne on the land of the Rwandjeri in Australia. And the work that needs to be done in the world now, I'm a very hopeful person. I mm -hmm. believe in us. I believe in humanity. I think we have to. Otherwise, how do we get out of bed in the morning? Mm. So that's who I am. I will let that land and say thank you for traveling the world by choice, by virtue, by gift, and landing where you have, because you have continued to create and iterate so many versions of yourself. And what I heard, one of the things I heard was that in order to be of light, I must connect to myself or I might not like you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful place to begin and say, tell me about your connection to self. Tell me about how you, um, are connecting with yourself in, in the smallest of ways and, and maybe in, in the biggest of ways as well. Mm. I have now been practicing yoga and meditation for 30 years. And that is one of the primary ways that I connect to myself. I have also, as a black woman navigating largely white spaces through my whole life, I have had to work out how to connect to myself and embody myself and understand and take ownership of my own narrative so that nobody else would be doing that for me. And so mm. I am continually checking in with me, how do I feel about things, not how should I be feeling about things? How do I want to do the work, my work in the world, as opposed to how should I be doing my work in the world? So for me, connection is so important. And when I talk about you know not liking other people, as an introvert, it is so important to me that I fill my cup all the time because then as a public speaker, as a coach, when I'm with my clients, when I'm with my audiences, I am so grateful and honoured and privileged to be in those spaces, but only if my cup is full. And it's a it is a disservice to my clients, to my audience, to my friends, to my family, if I am not constantly refilling my cup so that I can joyfully be in the spaces that I want to be in. It's my responsibility to manage my energy and to um, ignite my own energy so that I can not be resentful in any place that I find myself in. Mm, it's so powerful. Um, you speak of my responsibility. I, I often catch myself right now saying, oh, I wish this generation, I wish these groups of people could could take responsibility for who they are in the world. And it's because I have a bit of an allergic reaction when I get, when, when I rub up against um, blame or shame or guilt and things that get put on other people when really, what is it to be said to be responsible in this lifetime? And I'm wondering if you can share where that came from for you. And was there a turn? Was there 
a moment in life? Was it a book? What caused you to say, I am responsible for my life and I'm here to live my life this way? It was a book. So the first personal development book that I ever read was The Celestine Prophecy by James Mm. Redfield. And to give a little bit of context to the listener. So I was born in the 1970s, England. I was born to Nigerian, middle-class Nigerian parents at a time when those that had the opportunities were fostering their children out to white families in the UK, partly because they wanted us to have the best education that they believed that they could give us, which was an English education, which means we can't deny the colonial narrative that then runs under that decision. So that meant that from a baby until the age of 13, I had five primary carers. And I was incredibly loved by some of those families and experienced the complete opposite of love in some of those families. And I mean, can I interrupt you here? And can you help us understand when you have five foster parents, do you still have a connection and a relationship with your bio parents? Great question, because a lot of people do confuse fostering and adoption. Um, And also people confuse that if you're fostered, it means that you had to be removed from your family situation because of addiction or some other issues. So that's why I'm always mindful to own my narrative and say, no, my parents were not in that situation. It was very much a conscious choice around what are the best opportunities we can give our children as tens of thousands of Nigerian children were fostered in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So, yes, I would see my birth mother in the holidays. So I kind of had six primary parents you know I have lived with six mothers in my life and I only actually met my birth father once but I thought he was great because he took me to Paris and I was allowed to have hot chocolate and hot baguettes and jam for breakfast so I was just like this is the best dad in the world um so yeah so I did have connection with my birth um mother especially I would see her many times through the year yeah got it okay okay yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Please keep no, going. No, no problem. So then one of the opportunities of living, you know, or having six different ways of living projected onto you or that you get to assimilate into is, you know, you get a lot of stories. So I, but what one of the major stories I think I got as a young child and a young person was that life will give you things and you just have to make do. So mm. this is your lot. It's never going to get any better than this. And you do the best you can with what you have. So when I turned 18, it was around 18 that I read the Celestine Prophecy. That was the first indication that I had that we actually could have agency in our lives. That we didn't have to just make do with what we had been given. That we did have an opportunity to possibly create who we spent our time with where we spent our time, how we spent our time. And that was absolutely mind-blowing for me because it was completely counter to what I had lived, what I had been told, and what I had experienced. Suddenly the world opened up and that was where the idea of responsibility came in. If Mm. I want something different, it is for me to create the something different And I also, over time, have realized it's not about the external. 
it's about the internal work. It's why I do the work that I do as a coach and as an author, because it's actually about the internal work that we do that allows the external to then create in a way that honors who we are. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you. I didn't know if we were going to touch on childhood. And I think it's so powerful to understand um, family dynamics. And, you know, there's a lot of childhood trauma that seems to be circulating in, in therapy and coaching sessions often. And I think there's a time and a place. And there's also a time to say, to your point, when when are we owning our narrative? And mm. when when are we in this work t- for change? And when are we stuck in this work? that's sort of the opposite of change. And and I know you're in this in the most powerful way to create newness. Um, This might be a a topic that you say no to. And I I have to dip my toe here because we have a mutual friend who I adore deeply and her name is Steph. And you resurfaced when Steph in Melbourne met your son. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can share your journey of motherhood, having had the journey that you had with six moms, let's say, mm. um, because Steph speaks of your child like uh, the brightest star in the sky. And uh, I, I believe her. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, my journey with motherhood, it is interesting. You know, I was never going to have children and I was never going to get married. So you never know how life is going to turn out. Um, But I met this man, actually, I was working as a chef in Thailand. I had left a successful acting career, much to the, I I don't even know what the word is, let's just say no one in my life understood why I was leaving a career um, that many of my peers wanted. I had gone to drama school and I worked consistently as an actor for seven years, including with the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre. But one thing I knew from that job, as fun as acting was, and I still adore the craft of acting, I realized that as a black woman navigating the world, I did not want to play characters. I kind of knew that part of my work was to show up as myself without apology. And that meant that I had to navigate the world as myself. So I left acting, went to work with a stranger who I met in a pub, as you do, and worked as a chef in Thailand, which is where my husband landed as a backpacker. He's Australian, which is why I live in Australia. And I fell pregnant. We'd only known each other for nine months. We dated around Europe. We probably spent about nine months together on and off. And we fell pregnant. And I remember thinking, I think I have done what I wanted to do from leaving acting. And what I had wanted to do was to teach yoga and be a chef. I wanted to travel the world and teach yoga and be a chef, like this crazy kind of thing I wanted to do. And I fell pregnant and I thought, oh, I think this is the next chapter. But what I knew was that I wanted to raise my children differently. And I had no idea, to be honest, what that meant. But obviously something around the people around me and how they were raising their children wasn't resonating for me. And then I suddenly met this man whose parents had started had been one of the founding families of the Steiner School in the capital here, Canberra, in Australia. I'd never heard about Steiner education. And for those that don't know about Steiner education, the idea is that you really engage a child in the joy of learning and that the gift that they have is that they will enjoy learning for the rest of their lives. There's also something very much about the will of the child, that you follow the will of the child. 
And so my husband had gone to his parents' school and one of the first things he said to me was, I don't want us to have a TV when we raise our children. And I just looked at him like, I have no idea what you're talking about. How does that even happen? Um, I was someone that watched way too much television as a child. I saw things that I shouldn't have seen at a young age that had a really negative impact on me. And so I said to him, okay, let's trial it. Let's trial it for six months. I'll give this a go. And that was 20 years ago. I mean, we still have never had a television. Um, we obviously have screens and things now and our kids didn't get mobile phones until they were 14. And we were very lucky. I feel very much that part of that was luck because I can't even imagine the challenges of raising young people now compared to even 20 years ago um, around, you know, screens and devices. But we definitely had an opportunity to raise our children where that was not front and centre. And yes, we had some parents didn't understand the way that we were raising them because we didn't give them screens. But also we do have children that are very creative. They have their screens and devices now. They have the same challenges as every other young person, but they definitely know how to be with adults. We took them out of school when they were nine and 11. We ran, went around Australia for 387 days with no school curriculum. We just made it up as we went along. They saw us fail. They saw us just give things a go as they did. We set up a little entrepreneurship school for them where they, you know, created these little businesses in our caravan. And, you know, we do we do feel as parents that we that we raised our children with the values that we had. Did we get everything right? Of course we didn't. Not every parent gets everything right. I hope we have enough money in the bank to help them with their therapy bills, you know. <laughs> at some point when they come to us and say these are the things that you did wrong but yeah we're very um we enjoy spending time with our children we feel very grateful to have young people of this generation in the world that it is now and what they are teaching us and what we need to relearn and unlearn about the world and people in it so yeah that's I mean that's a very long answer to your question but um mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I enjoy my children. I don't I don't attach my worth to my children and what they accomplish at all. I am proud of who they are, though, and I feel very privileged that they chose me to be their mum. Hmm. Well, you clearly um, are in the work of rewriting what it means to be a family unit, and you know, from the journey of becoming pregnant to the journey that you have taken them on and, and it sounds like continue to take them on. I'm hitting the pause button on this sweet episode to tell you about something that you might like. Our newsletter, we call it the Corkboard. It has all things juicy, whether you are looking to keep in touch between episodes or find out more about our coaching, development, or hot new jobs that we're working on. The link is in our show notes. Your inbox is sacred and your time is too. So now let's get back to the episode. It would only be appropriate that we take our conversation to rewriting your career. And specifically, it would be remiss of me to not dive straight into who you are as an author. And you are now a two-time best-selling author. And your, um, your, your second book is coming out in the U.S. in September. It's already been a bestseller in your land down under. Um, I need to know the journey of becoming an author. What was it like for you? And what, what can you share with us about bringing these two books to 
earth side <laughs> thank you so it's actually it's my third book that's coming to third. The US. Oh. yeah yeah which is so exciting and I can I just say first of all I love the word remiss I just mm. something about that word I adore mm. um and I love speaking about authorship as well because I think it's so easy for people that want to write to believe that it happens in a particular way and that I definitely grew up with only certain people get to write and those certain people were white men until I discovered Alice Walker and Maya Angelou much like pretty late because I was raised in a white school system so books from people of color let alone women of color were just not an option at all they just were not within my um, orbit and also the families that I was living with they were not focusing on how do we integrate this child with their culture or some sort of mirror of themselves. And so I loved English at school, but I never, ever thought that people like me wrote books. Like that just was not even a thing. In fact, somebody asked me if you, if you um, when Power came out here in the Australia, someone said, oh, did you always want to be a writer? And I actually laughed. I was like, are you serious? No, that was never an option for me. Um but I saw this incredible man, Andrew Griffith, who's an Australian business author and writer, and I saw him speak at an event and he shared his story. He had come from a, from a working class family. He was orphaned as a young boy. And there was something about his story. Well, it was his vulnerability and his humility. And he there was something about the way he spoke. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I can write if I want to. I can write. And suddenly I had, you know, I had been reading now books of female black authors. So suddenly I did have this kind of idea of, oh, we are in inverted commas allowed to write books. Um, and actually Andrew has been one of my writing mentors for many, many, many years now. He's a dear friend. I call him a friend tour. I think we all need friend tours in our lives. These people that are a little bit ahead of you maybe, but they, you also have a beautiful friendship there. And I wrote my first book called um, Raw Beauty. So, yes, that was when I was in the raw food mm. space. Yes. And it was the seven principles of raw beauty. How do we as women live in the world regardless of our dress size? You know, I was very much into the work of Naomi Wolf at that time. This idea of do we want our tombstones to say she who was the thinnest won? And I was meeting a lot of women, even though I would do these raw food um workshops with them and I'd say this is not about dress size this is not about weight this is eating food that adds more energy to your life so you can live the life that you want and yet at the end of these workshops these women would come up to me and say so what has more calories cucumber or celery and at the beginning I found this hilarious we all sort of chuckled and laughed and I said I actually don't know but after a while it made me really angry because I realized wow we really have bought into this idea that our worth as women is only measured by our weight. And it made me angry because I realized, so what happens if we don't lose the five kilos? So what life do we get to live? Is that what we want our gravestone to say? She lost the five kilos. So I, that's when I decided to train as a coach. I want to be in spaces with women where we actually work out who we want to be in the world and how we want to contribute so that our gravestones can say things like she was a powerhouse she was passionate she was committed she was intentional she loved people people loved her um she broke ceilings she rewrote narratives for others and that was how I stepped into coaching 
And obviously part of the way that I write is that I get information from my clients. What are the reoccurring themes? I like to share my story as well through my work, where I have been, where I'm going, what I can take ownership of with absolute pride and excitement and what I still struggle with and what are the parts of me that are incredibly um, vulnerable. I will still always default as a black woman in this world. I will always default to am I safe and am I worthy? That will always be part of my story and not but and it also informs how I coach. It informs how I speak to audiences. It expo- it, it um, informs how I write. And I have read a lot of personal development books in my time. And I never tell people what to do. It is not my job as a coach to tell other people how to live their lives. It is my job as a coach and I believe as an author to share my story of how I have lived my life, what I have experienced. But it is my job to ask questions and to mirror back to people. How do you want to live your life? What is working in your life? What is not working? What are you proud of yourself for? What are you working on? What scares you still? What have you overcome? That's what excites me, creating safe spaces for people to understand who they have been and who they want to be and how they want to contribute to the world. Mm-hmm. Kemi, you raise my heart rate, my heart rate, you raise my vibration of what I see and think as possible, um, one question at a time. And because I know you are a woman of integrity, and that also means time integrity, I want to check in and say, I have a few more questions. Do you mind if we keep going? Or do I need to wrap this in a bow? No. Oh my gosh, Steph, you know, I could, it's been 12 years, you know, we could possibly speak for 12 hours. So no, I am very, very happy to keep chatting with you. Perfect. This is called consent. And for our listeners, these are really beautiful moments that you can take in your life at any moment in time, because when someone gives you the gift of time and you hit the end of that time, the most respectful thing to do is to honor that. And the second most courageous thing is to say, Kemi, can I have some more? And you said yes. So I'm going to go with that um, because I need to keep keep on you in, in the land of what it means to be an author. I actually think you might have been on a bit of a book tour or you had just written your first book when we met. Would that have been true? How long yes, ago? That's right. I had written. That's exactly right. I had written Raw Beauty and you were working at Lululemon. And I believe yeah. I was one of the first keynote speakers at Lululemon at the headquarters in Vancouver. Um, absolutely so yes. were. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I don't want to hop over book number two. I just, I, I want us to speak on the power of power. And mm. can you tell us about the birth of the third book? Yes. Well, the, the birth of the third book actually does involve my writing mentor. So I have this thing, it's kind of superstitious. Some authors have it, some don't. I do, which is that I need to know the title before I start writing the book. So I had called my um, friend tour, Andrew, and said, can you just, let's just brainstorm the title of this book. I'd already started writing some stories, some lived experiences. I had been jotting down some things that are coming up with clients. And I had said to Andrew, I said, I think maybe I'd like to call the book Growth. And he looked at me, it was a Zoom, it was through um, all the lockdowns. And he said, "Um, that's a pretty beige title. And I said, fair enough. And we had a laugh. 
And he said, think, what has been exciting you? What are you thinking of? What is the topic that is really igniting you right now? And straight away, I said to him, power. And I felt my whole body, like it wasn't goosebumps, it was fear. Because the next thought that came into my head was, who do you think you are to write a book about power? And then I realized, oh, it is exactly you who is the person to write the book about power because I've had to unlearn what power is and I wanted to share my unlearnings and my learnings about the kind of power that we need in this time of the world right now. So that was the beginning of the book Power. As I was writing the stories, and, and the tagline as well is a woman's guide to living and leading without apology. And so I just started collating stories from my clients, from myself. And I thought that gender was going to be the main sort of reason that I felt like I had been powerless through my life, which may have been naive, but actually it was race and the intersectionality of gender and race, because I can't separate the two. And that was kind of the basis of the book. You know, I've written it with my stories as gen with gender and the times that I felt powerless as a woman, the times that I felt powerless as a black woman, where those have intertwined. There are 14 stories of my clients with, that have different identities, different intersectionalities, different career levels, different industries, because I want a diverse life. So I have a diverse coaching practice and I ask questions through there. There are 26 what I call power processes. So at the end of every chapter, there are questions for the reader to ask for themselves, because I know, as I've already said, every single person will answer those questions differently. And if you were to go back to the book in a year's time, you would have different answers to those questions because we are humans and we evolve and we grow. The reason I wrote Power is because I believe that as women especially, we have opportunities in our lives now that we have never had. And the world needs us to lead, those of us that want to lead. And that leadership can be anything from staying at home with your children. I did that for the first seven years of my children's life because I had the resources emotionally, financially. You know, not every woman has the resources to do that in all of the ways that we can have resources and some want to and some don't want to, but also to those that want to be CEOs and for those that are juggling the two, you know, being with their children as much as they can and leading organizations. I want us to take full ownership of our power in the spaces and places that we find ourselves in. And so for me, power is a guide. It is a mirror. It is saying, yes, you may feel powerless in particular spaces or with particular people for particular reasons. And let's have a look at the wider context. We live in a world where many of us have been told that we are wrong, that we are broken, that we need to be fixed. And whether that is racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, whatever it is, there's a bigger context. And my wish and my desire and my hope with this book is that it mirrors back to us. This is why we feel the way we do. It is not individual. And yet there are individual experiences that we have that speak into that larger narrative. So how do we claim back our power in ways that serve ourselves and serve everyone around us? Mm, yes. Well, your tagline has captured me as a Canadian who loves the word sorry. 
And as a woman who thinks there's a lot to apologize for um, unnecessarily, thank mm -hmm. you for reminding us that we are not our dress size. We are not, you know, a job title. We are, we are not those things. Um, mm -hmm. And yet I'm curious your relationship with apology. How did that make the tagline for you? Because to be honest, I think for the first 28 years of my life, I have lived as an apology. Mm. I very much took on, as a lot of women do, that our value and our worth comes from being available to everyone else all the time. Mm. And that we must say yes to everything that is asked of us. Otherwise, we have no value and have no worth. And we are human beings. We need to feel valued and worth. You know, we need to feel that we are of worth. Not only did I take that on as a woman, I took on as a black woman to be a good black girl as a young child. So not only be a good girl or a good woman, but be a good black girl. So I was always an apology. Then add being English. We say sorry just for being around. You know, I am one of my foster mums says sorry at the beginning of every sentence. Like it's also part of the English culture. And I believe in manners 100%. But that is very different to being an apology, to walking in a room and in your demeanor, in your language, apologizing. It's just me. Oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, I talk about in the book how we diminish ourselves in language. And I talk about the power of words where a woman will say, oh, I think that maybe when actually we know. Sometimes we do think we're not sure, but a lot of times when you listen to our language, we are diminishing what we actually know. We diminish our experience. We say, oh, I think that maybe as opposed to in my experience, having been in this industry for 10 years, this is what I know. Or my opinion is this is what we need to do next. And we know once again, because of a larger context, when a woman is clear in her communication, when a woman has a vision, when a woman um, really values efficiency or effectiveness the story about her is not necessarily positive whereas when a man displays those particular values completely different and we need to look at what we do to ourselves but once again we need to be self-compassionate enough to know ah oh, it's not just me it's all women within all contexts that have this experience so then how do we take ownership of this for ourselves and then how do we support each other and you know for those of us that identify as women and or for those of us that identify um, with any kind of gender identity that doesn't fit into the norm, we have the opportunity to constantly be recreating our narratives because there's power in doing so and taking ownership of that for ourselves and for each other. We can say to another woman who says, I think when we know that she's been in the industry longer than anyone else in that room or that she is parenting in a way that we really admire, that is really honoring who she is and her children, her family, that we can say, I know that you know what you're talking about. So you could take ownership of what you're talking about. You know, if it's someone that we know and we have permission and consent to speak to them in that way, that we can hold each other accountable in how we show up. Hmm. I want to give you the upgrade that we can hold each other powerful and we can mm. hold each other so so able to call out each other's brilliance and and gifts and light and that feels like the most perfect segue that um we are celebrating this is already like i said a bestseller in australia and you are coming to the us for 
the launch on the North American side of the world. And I had to ask, how do you celebrate? How do you celebrate such a moment in time? I love that you've asked me that question. I celebrate everything always, right? Mm. So I think that's one thing as well about the power. I talk in the book about the power of delight and the power of fun. I do not take for granted the work that I get to do in the world, the relationship that I have with myself, um, considering where I have come from. I am eternally grateful. And I celebrate the book and everything. And I celebrate the butterfly that I saw this morning. And I celebrate the way the sun hits the leaves on the trees. And I celebrate the relationship that I have with my husband and my partner of 20 years There are so many things that I celebrate. I think it's so easy for us to think that celebration only comes with work, you know, or that celebration comes with these external achievements that we may have. And 100% they must be celebrated. But when power came out in Australia, I was hanging laundry because that's what we do, because that's what living looks like. The world did not stop. There were still dirty clothes that needed washing on that day. And that's what I did. And so for me, the celebration isn't always about these big moments that happen that are external. They are also about these internal moments of, wow, I have, you know, done the thing that I never thought that I could do. Or I have people in my life that love me for who I am and that hold me to a version of myself that I honor myself. So I always celebrate and I celebrate in the big and small ways. And I love that question. I think many of us, I work with my clients a lot. I will ask them, how are you going to celebrate having that difficult conversation? And they'll be like, what do you mean? I said, we've just spent 45 minutes on all the fears and concerns that you have about this conversation. We don't know how the conversation is going to go because there's another person that's going to be involved in that conversation. But you do get to celebrate that you have the courage and the bravery to go into that room and have that conversation. So I think it's something that we can definitely bring into our lives more is to celebrate ourselves and the progress that we've made, however big or however small that progress is. I love it. And if it means you're hanging laundry on the day that your book is deemed a bestseller, it means you're hanging laundry on the day that your book is a bestseller. Amen. Yes. Um, Okay, we need to go back uh, for a moment. Um, You spoke of questions. And of course, as a coach, you, you are the question and you are the conduit to people having tough conversations to showing up in the world to making big changes. And I need to ask you, Kemi, what is the question of the day? Or rather said, what is the question that I haven't asked you that we need to know? Because what I know is that you are the one to ask the questions. And so I know that you know great questions. And I have to just ask, you are the expert you know the question, what question have I not asked you that I that I really should? I actually think, because you know I've listened a little bit to your podcast, so I think the question I want you to ask me is the question that you're going to ask me Aww. at the end. Because if you ask me before, then I don't know what I'm going to say. So I think that would be, I think that would be my answer to your question. <laughs> you know, I would tell you that's a brilliant cop-out and diversion and all and you and because it's you you get it i i think that um 
I want you to know that what I wrote down was who do we want to be in the world today? And may we grant ourselves the grace that that may change. And whether you are in your first or your sixth foster home, whether that means you are, you know, performing or you are cooking, whether it means you're in England or in Thailand, whether it means your greatest dreams are coming true or come true before you know it, you have shown us that with responsibility, we can navigate the space called this lifetime, which is nothing but a blessing and show up. Um, and I love the reminder of at the end, what we know to be true is a gravestone that will say, who are we in the world today? So I appreciate every minute. I appreciate the time it took to for you to say yes in your whole body for this conversation. And it just means so much to me that we are able to connect with each other. I have a deep relationship with mushrooms because I think that mushrooms of the edible source that are in the forest, they're just so connected. And I mm -hmm. think that our connection to one another now matters more than ever. And these conversations light up my heart and remind me that it doesn't matter where we are in the world. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. There's ways and places and spaces that we can stay connected. So yeah. Kemi, we have to wrap it in a bow and it's your question of the day. And that is what is making your heart beat faster? Okay, great, great question. Thanks for asking. What is making my heart beat faster? is the is my flower farming journey yes tell me more oh yes so I grew up in Kent in England I was surrounded by farms and paddocks and I have been a kitchen gardener my first foster parents were kitchen gardeners and my last foster parents were kitchen gardeners so even when I had my first um, flat in London, I had the smallest roof garden and I was growing like one broccoli in a pot. And I just I've just always, always been connected to the land. And I completely understand what you're saying about mushrooms and mycelium and we are mushrooms and the connection. But I decided this before 2020, I knew I wanted to start get into flower farming, but I didn't really know what that meant. And then 2020 hit and Black Lives Matter hit. And I realized that I want my activism to be about bringing beauty in the world mm -hmm. and to grow beauty because that is how we get to counteract some of the darker experiences of being human. And at the end of 2020, my husband and I bought a farm and I have been, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I, my dream is to keep doing my work as a coach and as a facilitator and as a writer, but for three years of the year, for three months of the year, um, because of the flowers that I'm particularly growing, which are David Austin roses and peonies, that I get to grow beauty in the world and with a social justice arm. Now, I don't know the how. And as a coach, I don't need to know the how. I just need to be courageous enough to have the vision. And I know I'm going to attract the people into the into this dream of mine. But I spend a lot of days watching regenerative farming videos and I've planted some test crops of peonies and David Austin roses at the farm already. We'll be moving there permanently in 18 months time because um, I don't need more than one home because obviously that has been my childhood experiences. Um, and that is my that is what is making my heart beat. Like even talking to you about it now, I'm so excited, excited about 
the rose pruning that I will be doing all of this weekend. Um, so yes, that is what's making my heart flutter, the opportunity to do work that brings joy and delight to others while also bringing joy and delight to me. Oh, Kemi, of course you're flower farming. Of course, of course. And I planted my first batch of peonies this year that did not bloom. And mm -hmm. I'm convinced they need another season, of course. And I feel like maybe that therein lies a message that beauty takes some time. It does. And from a purely practical sense, it could be that you planted them too deep. Oh, yeah. But you see, this is a whole other podcast. This is the peony, yeah. Uncle peony podcast, but it could also be that you've planted them too deep. So yes, beauty can take time and peonies, we have to um, disbud them for the first time that they do bloom, but um, it could be shade and it could be that they're planted too deep. So maybe have a look well, at that. Here we go. Take all the metaphors you wish with that. And um, I guess I would just leave it with our listeners. May you plant your flowers deep, far and wide. May you give them sun, shade and so much love. And may we all drink enough water to bloom. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and one thing I think as well, with using the, the flower metaphor is flowers go towards the light mm -hmm. and we should be moving towards the light. And if we can't, if we're in a dark place, surround yourself with people that can remind you that the light is coming even when you can't feel it because mm. there is light. Let's all create light for each other. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. And you know what makes my heart beat faster? The fact that I get to share with you that this podcast is brought to you in partnership with More Good Media. Our friends over at More Good Media are spreading the good word, one conversation, one podcast at a time. So thanks so much for your support. We are so glad to be here in partnership. Oh, hey, before you go, you know, listening to podcasts on this thing called the internet, it's a wild ride. And what would be so helpful on our wild journey is if you would be so kind to jump on and give us a review. Four, maybe even five stars. It really helps. Thanks for joining us.